It is Friday, so thank you, every last one of you who have been supporting Into the Word financially. Uh, We could not do this without that assistance. Anyone out there that is being prompted by the Holy Spirit to assist, then all you need to do is this. Write down the contact information you'll hear at the end of the program today. Then send your one-time or ongoing gift of any amount to that address, and it will be used to uh, pay the radio broadcast fees. Thank you for taking care of that. Fridays, I try to make a habit of urging you to be a part of a local body of believers. Everyone needs a home church. Everyone needs to regularly be part of that worship and fellowship and study and service and prayer and praise time. Uh, If you do not have a place like that, you need to go out there, do the research, and find a place, get plugged in there, and stay plugged in there. Now, if you happen to be in the process right now of looking for a place, and you're within driving distance of the Elkhart East Building, this is your invitation to come on over and join us. Be part of our little family. Uh, And even if you were to come for, you know, a visit... Um, please make sure you introduce yourself to me as one of my radio Bible students. I'd really love to put a a face in my head whenever I'm sitting here uh, recording uh, these, uh, these studies. Let's open to the book of Hebrews, chapter number four, and pick back up on this idea that not only is Jesus more significant than angels. He is also more significant than Moses and the uh, establishment of the Jewish people as an independent nation uh, under Moses. Uh, And so he has provided us a quotation from Psalm 95 and is working on this idea that Moses, excuse me, the the Jewish people that came out of Egypt lost their opportunity to go into the promised land, into that rest that God had intended for them because of their stubborn disbelief. That is, because they did not trust God enough to do what God told them to do. In fact, they pushed his buttons, got on his final nerve, Um, these are idioms that we use, uh, during that 40 years in the wilderness. You know, it was only supposed to be like uh, about a year and a half out there in the wilderness, Uh, but uh, because of their rebellions, uh, they got a timeout because God said no one from this adult generation, that is from, you know, above 20 years, uh, with the exception of two guys, are going to be allowed to go into the promised land. Everybody else is on a timeout until the 40 years are over with. Uh, so he's, he's using that Psalm 95 quotation to teach how the people getting this letter need to, to not do the same thing of disbelief. That is, stick with Jesus. Trust him to get you, not just simply through this time of persecution that was happening right around um, 65 and 66, 
but through whatever the future holds until you either die and are ushered into his presence by the angels or you hear the sound of the trumpet and uh, Jesus appears in the sky to redeem us all. All right, so chapter number four, verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, and that promise is that either by death or by second coming, Christians are going to enter into the eternal rest of God's presence, okay? So, while the promise of entering to his rest still stands, let us fear, show proper respect, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So, you don't want to screw it up by dropping off in your faith, in your trust. Verse 2, for good news, the gospel, came to us just as to them. What was their good news? Come out of Egypt to the promised land. So their good news came to them and they blew it off. So for the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So they didn't trust God to get them from Egypt to the promised land. Uh, For we who have believed entered that rest as he has said, quote, I swore in my wrath, or as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So you only get to enter God's rest, his promised land, his presence, if you trust him. Otherwise, he says, I don't think so. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, this is where he kind of brings in the idea of the the weekly Jewish Sabbath as an illustration here. The Sabbath day was given to the Jewish people as they came out of Egypt, because for all of their time of slavery in Egypt, they had worked seven days a week, all year round, their entire lives, they didn't get no time off, none. Uh, So God programmed it into the Jewish law given through Moses with apparently the assistance of the angels that Jewish people, all of them, must take off the seventh day of the week. Uh, And so this comes out of the, the story of creation. Uh, So, as I swore in my wrath, wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works, God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way. Quote, and then the quote is coming from Genesis 2-2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. End quote. Uh, So, God was done with everything that he had planned to make by the end of the sixth day of creation. So, he gave a seventh day of, apparently, celebration uh, about that. And then for the Jewish people, he said, you're going to take that day off. Verse 5, 
Again, in this passage, he said, quote, They shall not enter my rest, end quote. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, quote, today, saying through David so long afterwards, so it's David that's writing Psalm 95, in the words already quoted, quote, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, end quote. So now he's mixing together the creation week, the seventh day of rest by God, uh, and uh, the Jewish people coming out of Egypt, being told they were going to take the seventh day off every week, uh, and then they were going to be taken into a promised land where there would be rest for them uh, from their past uh, servitude and slavery in Egypt. And then after that, David sits down and he writes a psalm looking back at the rebellion of the Jewish people in the time of the Exodus, uh, the time of the wilderness experience, and the Holy Spirit says, today, if you'll just hear God's voice and won't harden your hearts like those guys did, you can enter into God's rest. All right, so all of that tied together, he now says this, verse 8, for if Yehoshua, the Joshua of the Old Testament, whose original name was Hosea, or just simply salvation, but Moses, after being given the divine name by God, renamed Hosea as Yehoshua, Yah's salvation, or perhaps even saved by Yah. Uh, so he becomes the origin point of a new name, which eventually is given to the Savior at his um, conception, his birth, his circumcision. Yehoshua, uh, he who is salvation. Uh, so there's a play on that as well here. There's just so much in here uh, for us to, uh, to look at. For if the original Joshua had given them rest when he took them into the promised land, right? God would not have spoken of another day later on. Talking about, enter into my rest. Because if Joshua had actually given them true rest, then why would there need to be talk about another rest? There wouldn't be. So the whole point together is the ultimate rest is being in God's eternal presence. That happens when faithful people die or when Jesus Christ splits the sky with the trumpet call and uh, the dead in Christ rise, the living in Christ are transformed and we're caught up together to meet in the Lord in the air and thus we will always be with him. We will be in his presence. We will be in his rest. So that's where the writer is going to. He wants to focus all attention on the future. Verse number nine. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the Sabbath rest in the New Testament book of Hebrews is not the seventh day week Sabbath of the Jewish people. It is going into God's eternal presence, either at your death or at the second coming. And that is where our focus needs to be. Now, I'm not going to take the time here to tackle this topic, uh, but there is nothing in the New Testament that teaches that Gentiles who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior must observe the seventh day of the week, the seventh Jewish day of the week, as a Sabbath day of rest. In fact, there is plenty of teaching that those who Judaize uh, the Gentiles, trying to force them to be circumcised and keep the laws and keep the Sabbath day, they are false teachers and they are facing the judgment of God. Now, that's the New Testament teaching on that topic, and you can go other places like the book of Galatians where I've dealt with this. But the principle still remains in force from way back in the book of Genesis. Everybody needs to take some time off. So all of you guys out there that tend to be workaholics, knock it off. Program into your schedule some good, solid time off every week. And if something happens, get some comp time. But everybody needs to take time off, and preferably on a regular basis. Uh, so that's my little quick side teaching about the Sabbath rest uh, in, um, in the Christian era. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be on a Saturday, but you do need to take some time off. Now, back to our text, because we don't want to lose this thread here. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that is, the eternal presence of God, either at our death or at the second coming, uh, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What's the disobedience? Basically blowing God off, doing whatever you feel like doing instead of doing what he told you to do. Uh, the people in uh, the Exodus experience, uh, quite a few of them, not all of them universally, but quite a few of them were pushing God's buttons right and left. Uh, they were hard-hearted and disobedient. And so the warning here is don't do the same thing. Now, what's in mind? Remember, this is being written at a time when the Christians are being persecuted for their belief in Jesus. And so that many of them are being killed up in Rome uh, and on the peninsula, uh, the, the uh, Italian peninsula, uh, and elsewhere they're also being persecuted in lesser forms because of their belief in Jesus. So apparently there were some people of Jewish extraction that thought they could drop the Jesus thing and go back into Judaism and be protected by the Roman law. 
And so that would be disobedience, because as Jesus said himself, anyone who confesses me before my Father in heaven, him will I confess before my Father. Or excuse me, if they confess me before men, him, they, I will confess before my Father in heaven. But anyone who denies me before mankind, I will deny him before my Father in heaven and before the angels as well. Uh, So that's the problem here. We're talking about people thinking about ditching Jesus. That's the disobedience. And uh, so the warning of the writer is, don't you dare. Don't you do it. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. Uh, Now, the word of God, we tend to think of Jesus real quick when we hear word of God or of Scripture itself. Uh, uh, The wording here uh, can certainly fit the idea of the written word of God in a form but it's got more of the thrust of activity. So it's got more to do with what is it that God has said. So God's spoken word, which then becomes his written word, that word is living and active. It's got energy to it. It's got dynamic power to it. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, the Roman soldiers carried a two-edged sword, which they had to keep razor sharp as part of their requirements. Uh, And so, um, the author of Hebrews picks up on that idea that God's Word is like a super sharp sword uh, that is able to pierce to the division of the soul and spirit. Now, that is very discerning. The soul, excuse me, let's start with the spirit. The spirit of God uh, that energizes us to give us life seems to be what is in mind here. Uh, Remember in the book of Genesis at the creation of Adam, God forms him out of the, the dust of the earth and then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, the spirit of life. And then it says, and man became a living soul. So there is a distinction between the life force that is given by God as a gift to all of humanity and the individuality, the soul, if you will, that comes out of that. Uh, and so the, the, the word of God can actually distinguish between those things uh, and... Uh, that's, that's pretty narrow. Uh, and then it says of marrow, uh, joints and marrow, which is another way of saying, you know, if you're chopping things up, a really sharp sword can make those really fine cuts in order to divide different things. Uh, so the Word of God in its power, in its energy, is able to make the difference where it needs to be made discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, God himself is the one that will make the final decisions regarding where everybody is going to spend eternity. And I can almost guarantee you, some of those are going to be very hard calls. 
you may not have ever thought about this, but there are some there are some dividings between those that will be lost and those that will be saved will be very razor thin in the decision. Now, you and I won't be making those choices. Uh, we have got to be better at uh, avoiding uh, some of that judgment where we damn people to hell or we guarantee people, guarantee people heaven. Uh, that's not our call. That's God's call. Now, we can use the Word of God described here to try to um, make it plain on the, the, the bigger calls, the easier calls, you know, uh, blaspheming Jesus and refusing him as Lord and Savior is a pretty good guarantee you are lost. Um, and naming the name and uh, living the life that produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that's a pretty good indicator that you were saved. But I'm talking about those little fine points in between. Only God gets to make those calls. Uh, verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So Jesus is ultimately the one that will make all of these decisions, and Jesus knows everything. He is well aware of not just simply the things that we do out in public. He's aware of the things we do in private. And it's not just that. He also knows what's going on in our heads that drives those choices. And so he will be the ones, he will be the only one judging the living and the dead, as this book started with. Uh, and um, all of us will stand before his judgment seat as he makes that choice uh, of either, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's rest, or depart from me, you doers of evil. I don't know who you really are. Let's make sure then that uh, we stay on the path of Jesus. Verse number 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. So now we're going to kind of uh, start talking about another way that Jesus is more significant than Jewish, things of Jewish importance. Um, it's going to be high priesthood this time. High priesthood is very important. Uh, but for believers, Jesus is that high priest. So since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So he's not an earthly high priest. He is a heavenly high priest. Yehoshua, Jesus, the Son of God. So we're having emphasis again on things we've already talked about, that he is salvation and that he is God in the flesh. Let us hold fast our confession. So stick with what we've already verbalized about him 
previously in our choices. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want him as my Savior. I want him as my Lord. We have verbalized that. Almost all of us have verbalized something along that line whenever we first became Christians. And so this writer is saying, stick with what you said in front of witnesses. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So we don't have some human high priest that is rich and powerful and lives in a big fancy home on the other side of town from us, and we've never met him and never expect to meet him, and he doesn't have a clue what our day-to-day life is like. That's not the type of high priest we have. We have Jesus. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So Jesus divested himself of his divine prerogatives. He took on the form of humanity. This is the Philippians 2 passage again. From conception onward, Jesus experienced life just like us. And when he was tempted, just like us, every single time he said, no, I will not do what is wrong. So he had victory as a human being where we failed as human beings. And that is why he then was able to become the substitutionary atonement for us. Because he is a human, had victory, and therefore could die in our place. But as, a, as God himself, he also had the ability to do that not just for one person, but for anyone and everyone. And then to come back from that uh, out of death into life again. So that's why Jesus is the best high priest that we could even imagine. And uh, from that, we are then given this encouragement. Let us then with confidence, with freedom of speech, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because we know Jesus is there as our high priest in the presence of God the Father. We should feel free to come and to make our situations known to him and verbalize how we're feeling and what's happened and what we need because we know Jesus understands and he will speak up on our behalf. Have a great weekend, a great Lord's Day. See you next time we're in the Word.